Welcome into another edition of the Blue Ribbon SEC Basketball Podcast along with Chris Lee. I'm Kevin Ingram. We are happy to have you with us as we uh, roll into another week here. We get another week closer to a season, hopefully uh, coming down the road not too far away. Chris, how you doing? Excellent, Kevin. It is fun to actually be talking sports again, which is something I think for a while we wondered if it would happen, but I'm optimistic that we're going to have some football and some basketball and yep. Uh, I've covered bad sports before, and you think that's bad, but I've decided I would rather cover bad sports than no sports, and I hope that's where we're headed. <laughs> yeah, I, I would agree with you wholeheartedly on that. It's nice to talk about actual players and, and plays and, and watch games as do, as opposed to talking about, well, are, are we going to have games or, you know, what's it going to be like? Is everybody going to be wearing masks and all that stuff? I mean, it's, it's been so much of that that it's nice to actually, you know, watch games and talk about stuff, you know, related to the uh, on-field or, in our case, on-court stuff. So, uh yeah, it's that that is good. It was fun to watch an actual football game the other night, and hopefully we'll have some uh, hoops coming up down the road. Uh, let's start. I know this is a, an SEC focused podcast, but let's start with some bigger picture uh, passings that, that have happened just in the last few days here. Uh, John Thompson, the legendary Georgetown coach, and Lute Olson, of course, uh, won a national championship at Arizona and uh, was also terrific uh, during his days at Iowa. Man, Chris, th- those are two legends of the game that that we've lost just in the past few days. They are. It's crazy that they happen back to back. I guess I'll start with John Thompson. I was a child of the 80s, and those were my formative years watching college basketball. And I just remember I'd be glued to the TV when Georgetown would play, and, and Georgetown was always in it to the end, and Thompson's teams were tough. They were sort of – I don't know if this is fair, but they were almost the – Maybe the 80s version of what the Knicks became later. They just were so tough and physical, and they protected the paint. And uh, I remember one time someone referred to John Thompson's offensive system as John Thompson's offensive prison. (laughs) Uh, I don't know if that was fair, but it was always – that was a colorful description of it. Look, when you tuned in to watch the Hoyas, you weren't always entertained, but I think the attention to detail that they had and the success that they had – uh, and of course, Patrick Ewing, I guess, would be the face of that program. It just every time I have a Georgetown flashback, I think of him patrolling the paint. And then, of course, they had the Twin Towers later with Morning and Matamba. Those teams weren't as good, but that's one of those things. If you look back on college basketball and think of the programs that left you with particular memories, I don't know if there's ten more uh, than Georgetown that that you tend to think of that have sort of defined my college basketball fandom. But, I mean, they were a force to be reckoned with. And what he did at that program, not just with the success, but graduating, I think, 97% of his kids, uh, that guy left a mark on college basketball that I don't think we'll forget. Yeah, and uh, it has been fun to uh, to hear some of the stories about him. The the one about where he called the you know the the drug dealer into the office and said, "Hey, stay away from my players." And and everybody remember that being a significant day uh, during his time at Georgetown. But yeah, if you think about it, they came really close to winning three national championships in a span of about five years. Because in '82 they lost in the Michael Jordan shot uh, in the Superdome. I think Patrick Ewing was a freshman that year. '84 uh, they they won the championship in Seattle. '85 they lost to Villanova in one of the biggest upsets in the in the history of basketball uh, in Lexington that year but you know if things broke right they they could have won three championships right there in that stretch and uh, yeah they they were just a, a fantastic program especially in the 80s I'm like you Chris I'm kind of a child of the 80s too and I mean people don't understand what a big deal Georgetown was if you, if you didn't if you weren't around back then you know Patrick Ewing and all those great players that that they had on those teams back then and uh, yeah it was a that was a, that was a special time for that program and you know with uh, with Belmont we 
we've played Georgetown a couple times uh, in the NCAA tournament in recent years. And uh, after one of the games, John Thompson, uh, John Thompson the third, was a coach at Georgetown, and his, his father, Big John, was uh, doing commentary on radio. and And he even went into the Belmont locker room after the game was over and, and congratulated uh, our guys on a good game. And uh, that, that was a pretty memorable moment for for those folks uh, to get a chance to, to visit with him for a couple minutes. As for Lute Olson, uh, he really built a winner there at Arizona. Uh, going back to 88, I believe, was their first uh, Final Four appearance when Steve Kerr was playing guard. But then uh, a few years later down the road in 97, they ended up winning the national championship in, in that uh, uh, overtime game against Kentucky at the RCA Dome. I was actually at that game, and that was you know that was the biggest win in Lou Olson's career uh, when they, they had, uh, you know, Simon Says Championship and uh, Bibby and that, that whole crew right there. But they had, they had some great teams, and he was an excellent coach and, and known as one of the gentlemen of the game for a long time. Yeah, and I was actually at that game myself. But before we go on to Arizona, Kevin, I want to ask you this. Are the two most memorable games of the 80s maybe Houston, NC State, and then Villanova, Georgetown? Because I'd I'd sort of forgotten when we talked about John Thompson, that Villanova game might be the one. Of course, it didn't define his career, right? But that was one where they were a huge underdog. They played in the same conference. I think Uh Georgetown had won twice that year. That just to me was one of those games that you think about. There's so many good moments that Georgetown was involved with, but that one in particular is one that sticks out. And I think I look back to the Big East. I hate that that conference fell apart the way it did Uh because you go back and look at how many players were in that league, how great the Big East was when it was St. John's and Villanova and Syracuse. And I don't know that a league has ever had a much better run than – the Big East ever had, say, between the mid-80s and the mid-90s. It just, you look back on it, and I'm, I've always been sad ever since it disbanded because I felt like we lost a big part of our basketball fandom when, when that league yeah. fell apart because of the rivalries. The Big East tournament was great every year, and I, I didn't want to just go on to Lute Olsen without sort of mentioning that as well. Oh, yeah. The, I mean, the, the Big East was, was so dominant back then. I mean, you think about that, the Final Four in 85 in Lexington, three of the four teams were from the Big East because St. John's was in there as well. Georgetown beat them in the uh, the semifinal game, and uh, if I remember right, and I think uh, Villanova beat Memphis State uh, back then. But yeah, it was, it was such a great league, and I, I'm like you. I, I was a little sad when when everybody broke up, and you know, he had you know Syracuse and, and and some of the others, you know, moving to to different leagues. To me, those will always be Big East teams, no matter how many years Syracuse is in the ACC. Uh, it, it'll, it'll never that will never like completely leave my mind that they're, that they're part of that. But as for Lute Olson, quick thought on Lute and that Arizona program. Well, people forget this, and I would have to go back and look up the exact numbers, but Arizona was a bad program until he got there. I don't recall Arizona ever having done anything. It was just wild to watch him not only put the Wildcats on the map, but make them a national power, win national titles, go to Final Fours and things like that. And Lute Olson was a guy that I think was liked and respected by a lot of people. Um, And I think that that run of success that he had – Given where he came from, I don't know what the list of 10 greatest coaches in the history of college basketball would be. I'd have to do some research. But I think off the top of my head, both he and John Thompson would have a case to be on there, not just for what they did in terms of wins and losses, but where the programs were before both those guys took them over. Yeah, 
they, they build them both into winners, and they also put a ton of guys in the NBA. You think about who all's come out of Arizona, you know, during that stretch when, when Lute Olson was coach. It, it's a pretty impressive roster of dudes. So, uh, yeah, the, the losses of John Thompson and Lute Olson, uh, we've seen uh, Eddie Sutton and Lou Henson also pass away in, in uh, recent weeks and months. But I uh, wanted to make note of that as we, we start what's uh, an SEC-focused podcast. Chris, uh, as far as the, uh, the Southeastern Conference, it's, it's really been an interesting offseason here. It's it's a very deep league. We feel like it's going to be that way this coming season. How, how do you sort of stack up those first four or five teams as you take a look at it? Still a couple months out from getting started. My first take on the league this year, Kevin, is remember the Big Ten last year. It had all those really good teams, but not really a powerhouse. Michigan State was supposed to be that. The season didn't really play out that way. But I think one of the first things that caught my eye is Jeff Goodman came out with his top 50 back in April. And there are, I believe, nine SEC teams in it. And he, he's got Alabama, Tennessee, Florida, Kentucky, LSU, Arkansas, Auburn, Ole Miss, and South Carolina. So really, once you're in the top 40, that's an NCAA tournament team. Right. If you're that 40-45 team, you're probably on the bubble. Um, and then anything after that is probably an IT level. So first of all, it shapes up to me as a league where it's going to be very balanced, which to me, for a league race – makes it very interesting in terms of how that plays out. And I think one of the things you always watch is scheduling and, and who gets two opponents. Uh, you know, do you play Kentucky and Florida twice, that kind of thing. That always has a factor in determining the pecking order at the end. But I think that stands out. I talked to Chris Dortch this morning. We're going to have three SEC teams in our top 25. It's going to be Alabama, Tennessee, and Kentucky. LSU, I think, just missed it. Mm-hmm. So I would say the pecking order starts – I don't know if that's the order of the teams. Uh, Jeff Goodman had Alabama as his number one team in the league and had Kentucky at 24, by the way, which was a little bit low. And, and that one I think we're all waiting to see if Wake Forest transfer Olivier Saar gets eligible. That will have a bearing on Kentucky's fate. But to me, from this point, it looks a lot like you've got a league with a lot of balance, a lot of NCAA caliber tournament teams but maybe not a title contender out of the gate. What happens with LSU and Will Wade in particular? Uh, the NCA says uh, he offered inappropriate payments to 11 potential recruits, their families, and so forth. It's going to be decided by that uh, independent accountability uh, resolution process, uh, as they call it. But uh, to me, it's amazing that, that he's made it this far. What's the future, you think, for the LSU coach? Well, first of all, Kevin, help me out here. I believe that the news on that came out, what was it, almost this time three years ago? Uh-huh. Uh, so I remember when that whole thing came out in the summer, and the narrative at the time was this is the thing that's going to really shake up and change college basketball. That hasn't happened yet. But it's just interesting to me how I mean, he's been on a wiretap, and that's been out there for a while. And I guess this is sort of the second shoe to drop. ESPN has come out with a report that he has basically had illegalities involving 11 players. Sometimes that's maybe the kids. Sometimes that's maybe relatives and parents. But I think the first thing, it's just been so hard to make guesses on what is coming next because the NCAA appeared to have guys caught red-handed three years ago, and yet here we are. Will Wade's still in the chair. He's probably the most or one of the most public faces in this in terms of okay, here's some evidence that would seem to prove that he is innocent. I don't know about you. I'm almost out of the prediction business because <laughs> I would have said three years ago 
this is was wrong, but I'm like, if you'd said, okay, you're going to be having a podcast about Will Wade three years from now, and we're still not going to know his fate, I would have said you're crazy, but that's sort of how it is played out. Yeah, he's, he's still going to be LSU coach. Yeah, isn't it funny, Chris, though? I mean, you, you think back a couple years ago, and when all this started coming down, it's like, this is going to rock college basketball to its core, and we're going to see a, a whole new game. And at the time, I said, you know what, I'll, I will believe it when I see it. And, and here we are in... in you know, September of 2020, and and it really, I don't know that we we've really seen a, a significant change. I mean, we've we've had more come out about these programs that were involved, but uh, have we have we really has it really shaken the the game to its core? I don't think so. Well, and here's the other interesting thing, Kevin. This infractions referral committee and and the IARP, which is going to handle this. I mean, it sounds like it's a way to fast track the cases. There's no appeals that will tie the teams up. I don't know when the timeline for this is going to go down, but let's give, let me give you a hypothetical, okay? It seems like with the NCA, things take at least as long as you think they're going to take and usually uh. longer. And again, if you, if you short circuit the appeal, I think that's going to be an interesting angle because that cuts some of this out. But let's say this drags on for another year or two. You've got the name, image, and likeness stuff that's out there. I mean, what dynamic plays into this let's say that if um you know a, a couple years from now for some reason they're still litigating this case and then all of a sudden the stuff that the lsu program did is no longer against the rules uh that's an interesting op to me is is how does this go when a lot of folks are trying to make these things legal within the framework of the ncaa rules that that lsu just got caught doing that's an interesting thing sure. to me too is you have this against the backdrop of that whole movement. We'll see where that goes with uh, LSU coach Will Wade. This is the SEC Basketball Podcast, the Blue Ribbon SEC Basketball Podcast, along with Chris Lee. I'm, I'm Kevin Ingram as we uh, explore some topics with Southeastern Conference Hoops. Now, something you're writing about is the arrival of Marshall Henderson on the uh, Ole Miss coaching staff. We remember him from a few years back, of course, uh, you know, flamboyant and loud player when he was uh, with the Rebels back in the day when when Andy Kennedy was coach. And, you know, they they, they won big in the SEC back in, in those uh, in those times. And now he's going to be back as an assistant coach. i got to admit, when I saw that one, I was like, wow, that, that is an attention getter right there as he joins Kermit Davis's group. Yeah, but it's also a good story. I mean, Marshall Henderson was always interesting. Marshall Henderson also had some personal problems that I think that are well documented. And America, maybe in 2020, this isn't the case anymore. You wonder, but it's always been sort of a second chance society. To me, when I heard that Marshall Henderson was good, going to join that coaching staff and had been coaching, because I hadn't exactly followed him. No, since he I, left I didn't Ole know this. Yeah, but he's he's coached at a high school. He's coached at a college. I, I talked to Kermit Davis this morning. This is what Marshall Henderson wants to do with his life. And I think a lot of kids who have been in college have had issues, have had personal things go on. You know, who better to maybe guide them through some of those things than the guy that's had issues of his own and and maybe to shed some light on, on how you stay out of trouble and what you might have done differently. He was a kid who was always one heck of a competitor. The sideshow, I think, I'm not going to say it it dwarfed the talent and what he did on the floor because that would be fair. He was SEC Player of the Year. But let's face it, when you talked about Marshall Henderson, as often as you talked about the big shots he hit, you talked about the other things that, that came with him. Um, I'm really hoping that for Marshall Henderson and Ole Miss, this is going to be the start of a, a better chapter of his sure. life and, and a way to – kind of pass along the good that he did 
and maybe to keep some kids from making some of the same mistakes that he made at the time. Yeah, you know, and, and we all know that you get a little older and, and you have a little different perspective on things. And maybe when he comes back, and you're right, he, he could be a guy who could who guides some players into in making good decisions and uh, you know has a different lo- way of, of looking at things at this point in his life. So, uh, yeah, and and you're going to have that uh, on the uh, on our Blue Ribbon report coming up soon, right? Yeah, I think that will go out on Thursday morning is the schedule. You, you cover Vanderbilt a lot. What, what do you like about the way Jerry Stackhouse has gone about uh, putting together this recruiting class? Well, he's gotten a little better talent. I'm still not convinced that long-term he's a, a great recruiter. I think that COVID sort of leveled the playing field. Uh, Jerry has not exactly been known for his ability to get out and, and beat the bushes in recruiting, but what COVID has done is make everything into a Zoom recruitment, right? Kids yeah. didn't even visit, those sort of things. I think that leveled the playing field. Right now, I think they're in the top 25 of recruiting rankings. I think that's a little bit misleading because they've signed a couple of players where you've got some programs that are waiting on McDonald's All-Americans and four- and five-star recruits, whereas their class is finished. But I think the thing that I look at that he's done, Kevin, the last couple of years is he has brought in transfers. We'll see DJ Harvey from Notre Dame this fall. Um, I question whether he's a good enough shooter to give them exactly what they need, but he was a top 50 recruit out of high school. They landed the McBride kid from Kansas who left without having played, and he was the Arkansas Gatorade Player of the Year. Uh, you know, he got Quentin Malora Brown, who was productive at Rice in Conference USA. So I think you're seeing him starting to hit the transfer market, which I think was part of the plan with him all along. So you know, recruiting rankings are going to explain some up with him, and I don't think that they are – are going to burn it up in that regard, although they've got a chance to land a top 100 player around the corner potentially. But I look at Jerry Stackhouse and what he's done. Two things is I think he started to build that program with transfers. Uh, And another thing is he's filled the roster. I think they have 13 scholarship players, which I think last year they were down to, I don't know, eight, nine, ten at at some points. And they were playing. I know at one point I remember watching the Georgia game. They had three walk-ons on the floor at the end of the second half or – the end of the first half in that one. So at least he has built a full roster, and that's going to be something he didn't have a year ago. You talk about COVID leveling the playing fields on a lot of different things. Chris, how do you think that's changed things as far as player development and really team development, too, with you know guys being away and back home and, and you know not not on campus as much as they normally would be whether it's you know getting the individual work or working out you know in, in the regular facilities to me that that's going to i think that's going to make a, a noticeable difference for for some of these teams especially ones that are stocked with young players yeah kevin as you know part of my job during the day is to edit at blue ribbon and so i see all these stories that come in from across the country from conferences big and small and i i don't remember the coach and maybe it was more than one but one comment that the coach had made is like Look, we're at a little bit of a disadvantage uh, this year because we're bringing in all these new kids and we lost a lot of time for them to mesh in the offseason. That's going to be tough to recover from. And I think you'll see that in college football, especially with teams that have changed coordinators and things like that and yeah. have brought in new systems. I think there's a case to be made that that favors the veteran teams who have been together for a while. So I don't know if that's how it plays out, but maybe early in the season at least I suspect – the field will tilt a little bit more to those veteran teams uh, probably in November and December, the ones that are used to playing with one another. This is going to be a total guess on both of our parts, but do you think will we see any of a, of a pre-conference, or do you think when it's all said and done, it'll basically roll right into conference play when, when January gets here? 
Man, I don't know. I've wondered that myself. Um, I've, I've heard rumors that Vanderbilt is one school that's maybe not going to have a November, December schedule. Um, I think you're seeing it in other conferences, some smaller leagues in some other parts of the country. But that's the thing that I'm watching. And, Kevin, I even wonder how much that's affected by the day-to-day news. I mean, you have seen it play out in football with the Big Ten uh, where – that league debated and, and went back and forth and decided to cancel football and now has been trying to backtrack the last week or two. I wonder as the news changes and the CDC has come out with something very interesting in the last few days where it says basically only about 6% of the COVID cases, uh, that were the, the COVID deaths were COVID alone. In other words, there were complicating factors. Uh, that, that calls the other 94% are contributed to at least. I look at that and I look at the fact that you're not seeing young athletes, uh, at least dying in this. Now there are some long-term considerations and I wouldn't minimize those, but I just wonder if the news cycle where this thing has not been as bad as we thought it might have been for younger kids, uh, will maybe, maybe have a role to play in terms of bringing us some November and December basketball that we might not have gotten otherwise. And then there's the talk of, uh, of playing games, you know, in a bubble. I don't know if it'll be anything close to like what the NBA or the NHL has done, but man, I, I sit there and think, I hope we're farther along by the time we get to the NCAA tournament where we don't have to worry about something like that. Yeah, I do too. And I just, I know that the athletic had a piece on it this week. I think there were 40 different sites mentioned. Chris Dortch told me that I think that Chattanooga, where he lives, is potentially one. I just don't know how they do that. I mean, I yeah. think that's hard enough even for one or two bubbles, but to do that many, I don't know. Maybe I need to read the details and see more, but to me that seems like it's something that is very difficult to pull off if you, if you are the NCAA. Yeah, no doubt about it. What else are you looking for as we uh, kind of make our way through this offseason and get a little closer to, to SEC play in particular? Well, I'm just looking forward to seeing how these rosters shape out. Of course, one of the, the storylines we have this time of year and even as it gets into play, I mean, we've seen this happen where kids get eligible uh, a couple of games in or, or maybe at the semester. So to me, I think the storyline we always watch is is what transfers get eligible. Olivier Saar at Kentucky is probably the big one I'm watching. I know there are others I'm probably forgetting. Uh, Isaac McBride at Vanderbilt, I talked about him earlier, the transfer from Kansas. Uh, McBride never played at Kansas and left September last year. It seems to me like he should be eligible this year, but trying to guess what the NCAA is going to do is a fool's errand. Uh, that kid is still up in the air for Vanderbilt, could be a big player for them. So to me, it's just watching to see who the NCAA makes eligible and does not. Chris, we'd be remiss if we didn't give the sales pitch for for our product here. Uh, it's really been fun to be part of this uh, this new Blue Ribbon venture with Substack. If you go to blueribbon.substack.com, you can uh, you can subscribe to the Blue Ribbon Report. It's weekly. It arrives right in your mailbox. It has great writing that you guys do. Um, it has our podcast. You know, links to those. Uh, we we give you something every week. Uh, Chris Dorch and I do the national. Uh, you and me and Blake and Chris will will do uh, an SEC centered podcast every other week. So it's. it's it's a lot of good stuff, and it's really reasonable if you're a basketball fan. It's a no-brainer to me. Yeah, and one neat thing about it is Chris Dorch and I have discussed these things for years. Of Man, if I just had some time, I'd like to write about this or write about that. And the conversation would always end up with, well, that doesn't really fit with the book, with what we're doing and the yeah. page limits and things. And so now this is sort of our blank canvas to be able to pursue stories and things we've wanted to do. I did a story a couple of weeks ago on Gonzaga. I talked to Dan Dickow, who was Gonzaga's first really transfer of any stature. I think first transfer period 
in Mark Few's era up there. Uh, talked to Tommy Lloyd, one of their assistants. That was a really interesting story about how Gonzaga had really mined the transfer market and is starting to get kids that every other school in the country wants. And so they're just little things like that that we get to do. I know I went to Chris a couple of weeks ago and said, hey, Marshall Henderson has joined the Ole Miss staff. That would be a good topic to write about. So I think we're all excited about that just because it gives us an avenue to pursue some stories we really wanted to do long ago but didn't have the way to do it. And so I'm really excited to see where this leads all of us. A lot of fun. We'll do it again, Chris. You bet. He's Chris Lee. I'm Kevin Ingram. This has been the SEC Basketball Podcast, our Blue Ribbon SEC Basketball Podcast. And you can, of course, uh, check everything out, blueribbon.substack.com. We'll talk to you next time.